Good morning. If you have your Bible, you want to get to 2 Samuel 6. Um, before we do that, I want to say a couple things real quick. Um, Tim Keller uh, says this, that community without mission is cancer. Uh, yesterday was just an awesome time. Uh, it's hot, but just several of us that went and served at Russell Elementary and uh, painted this big, colorful 100s chart. Um, and the principal was just, just overwhelmed with joy for um, even many of you who won't have a tangible impact in the fact that like your kids go there or anything like that. And, um, and I came across this quote yesterday, just thinking about that idea, community without mission is cancer. That if we're not sent, being sent as a community, um, we're in deep trouble. Um, so we always want to be a church that's sending, um, but we're also excited about when people come back. So Rebecca's back, um, and I actually just randomly last minute asked her if she wanted to share, and she said yes. So um, she walked in the door. I said, hey, you're back. What do you want to say to us after six months in the Dominican? And he's talked about what he's going to talk about, and I remember just from looking at podcasts that he was talking about church. Um, I was like, I do want to share it, actually. And if I cry today, every community. Um, so, yeah, I've been in the Dominican Republic for seven months working with a missionary there. And um, everyone would ask me, like, What's your, what are you most excited for when you get home, whatever? And while things like AC and hot water were really exciting, um, hands down, the thing I was most excited for was walking in those doors because you guys are just like my family. And, um, you know, it's not fun always to live without AC or hot water, things like that. But um, you can. But I don't feel like I can live like, without my community and without you guys. And you're just so important to me. Um, I lived there for like seven months. And I lived with Brittany and Brian right now. And before that, and I lived with several others of you in this room. So it's feeling like I have a home has kind of been, I don't know, a difficulty and a place that feels like home. But... Truly, I feel like you guys are like that for me. And, um, anyway, I'm just really thankful for all of your love and support while I was gone. And um, just wanted to say that and share that with you guys. And tell you that I love you and I'm excited to be here. So, yeah. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for sharing on the spot. Uh, just such a cool picture of really what we wrapped up last week, the idea of one God's call for us to be one body together in one church. Um, so we're, we're transitioning back to uh, Life in Chaos, so Life in Chaos Part 2. If you remember Life in Chaos uh, Part 1, it was really just a, a heavy look at the life of David. First Samuel, God anointed David as king, but yet he never saw the tangible promise um, happen. It was much chaos. You remember, like, what was, it was full of David really running from his life, running for his life from King Saul, who God removed as king, 
Um, so a lot of death, a lot of sorrow, a lot of danger for David. And now we take the turn to what happens as he's on the throne. One thing I want to point out before uh, I get to that point. Um, at the end of First Samuel, I want to encourage you to go back and read the end of First Samuel, where Saul dies. He's in battle and he dies. And it says David mourns the death of Saul. Just unbelievable. This is the guy who, who tried to destroy his life. And David is grieved at the fact that Saul has died. Um, Tim Keller says, It's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to them. Um, I just want to point that out as we take the turn and we even think about how that mirrors uh, David's heart. So how many of you have ever been on a road trip? Okay, what, what, is an, what are some elements of a good road trip? Fighting children. <laughs> Fighting children. <laughs> Interesting. Beef jerky. Beef jerky. <laughs> What'd you say? Music. A Jeep with no glass. Like you have a windshield or no windshield? Just bugs in your teeth. <laughs> Just catching them. Catching birds in your teeth. That's awesome. Um, well, it's interesting because the, the passage that we're going into uh, is actually the beginning of a road trip for David. Um, it's not necessarily a very long road trip. Um, but some of the things that accompany David on this road trip are um, an enormous amount of friends. In fact, there's 30,000 of them. Um, quite the road trip. Um, there, uh, he's deeply concerned with safety. Like, I don't know if you ever go on a road trip and you're like, we got to check the car, check the tires. I went on a road trip recently and uh, the car totally broke down in the middle of the highway, in the middle of nowhere, and I was stuck with me and my daughter. So you check for safety, you check and make sure that you have everything you need, good music, good friends. Um, David not only had, had the safety of good friends, he had a new set of wheels, probably not like we would think, but um, we'll see that in just a second. But also what accompanied him was the presence of God. Um, let's look at this passage in 2 Samuel 6, beginning at verse 1. It says this, And David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Okay, there's the new set of wheels I was referring to. Um, anybody go on a road trip on a cart? <laughs> Probably not. Um, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So I want you to get this picture. Um, David has been waiting for years for the fulfillment of God's promise that he would become the king of the nation of Israel. It's been somewhere around 15 plus years that he's been waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. Maybe we need to just be reminded of that this morning. That sometimes waiting to see God fulfill answers to prayer, what we believe God spoke over our life, takes a long time and a lot of waiting and a lot of chaos before we see those things come to fruition. And David here, um, his first assignment as the new king is to move the Ark of the Covenant to the new capital city, Jerusalem. And so that's, what, that's what's happening in this beginning, the beginning of this passage. I want to put, put up the Ark 
of the covenant. This is a picture up on the screen. Um, you maybe have seen something like this before. This literally depicted, it was like the earthly throne of God. Um, it contained uh, inside of it the tablets of the Ten Commandments, God's covenant with man, the written agreement with uh, God and people. It was a place where God often revealed his will. It was such a holy place that you see um, the rods running through it, signifying that, you, that no one could even touch it, um, let alone once it got to the temple even be in its presence. It was put within a, in a room called the Holy of Holies. Some of you may be familiar with this. And only the high priest could enter that area once a year um, because it was the utter holiness of God. And so they're in the process of transporting the holiness of God, and David uh, assigns this army to protect them, to help go with them. And they're on this journey, and he takes these two individuals, uh, Ohio and Yuza, and they're, they're the ones driving this new cart. He gets a brand new cart to put the Ark of the Covenant on the brand new cart because it is the dwelling place of God, the holiness of God. And you could imagine all the excitement for David. Like, I'm a, he's a new king. He's just been put on the throne. Imagine if you've ever been put in a position of leadership, um, if you ever had a new assignment and you're just envisioning, man, here's all the things that I want to do. Here's all the things I want to be a part of. Here's the change I want to see God do. And you can imagine for David as the leader wanting to bring the presence of God to the center place of worship that is Jerusalem. So this is a really, really, really big deal that goes really, really, really bad. Um, they're traveling with the cart, and they're literally, you can read in a couple of verses, that they're celebrating, they have all kinds of instruments, they're literally having a, it's like a, it's like a mobile party. Um, and all of a sudden, the oxen begin to stumble. Uh, the cart begins to fall. Uh, this guy, Uza reaches out like any of us would, like this is like a, a holy... Uh, Peace that depicts the presence of God reaches out to catch this ark and he touched it, which was strictly forbidden. Um, and God, right there, strikes him dead. So it's a celebration, this unbelievable, joyful celebration in taking the presence of God to Jerusalem and it is interrupted by tragedy. Um, maybe much like the family that was recently at, at the Disney resort that had their family vacation interrupted by the loss of their son to an alligator. Just a tragic story that we probably all heard about. But listen to, listen to what happens. Let's look at verse 8. So they're celebrating the uh, death of Uzzah happens. And I want you to see how the, the, the situation just completely turns. Verse 8, it says, And David was angry. Permission to be angry at God right here in the Bible. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So David's in this pinnacle, the excitement of his, the beginning of his leadership as king. And all of a sudden it goes crashing downhill and David is angry. Uh, it could possibly be he's angry because of the fact that this just seems really harsh. Okay, this is like one of his guys, one of his friends that's just killed. Um, it could be possibly that he's angry because he realizes that he sinned and that his sin is really what caused the death of this man. Um, the ark was never to be put on a cart. Uh, that's why the poles were in it. It was never to eat, regardless of if it was a new cart or not, if it was, it was to be carried alone. And David had violated that. We'll talk about that in just a second. But he's, he, he's angry, but he's also, uh, there's fear. Maybe it's fear. Man, God could strike me right now. God could strike me. He just killed him. I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who actually brought this upon him. So he's afraid. Possibly he's afraid because he doesn't know if he's even ever worthy to actually complete the trip from moving the ark to Jerusalem. Um, One theologian talking about the holiness of God in fear says this, a guy named Walter Brueggemann, he says this, When people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. When we lose the aspect that, man, God's, God's holy, and he's powerful, and it just becomes a, um, a mobile party, so to speak, void of actually what obedience looks like in the midst of celebration as God's people, which is what it was for David. It was obedience on his terms. Um, I wonder if some of the chaos in our lives is a direct result of our neglect of God's presence, his, his holiness. Um, keep reading verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So David, a man in much fear and anger, finds out, this is just profound to me, he finds out that the, the throne of God, the earthly throne of God, the, the ark of the covenant, that they're on this journey, and they're like, we're done with this. Just put it in this guy's house. Like, I don't even know if he was home. Like, they just kind of put it, like, put it there. A guy shows up, and there's this Ark of the Covenant, like, sitting in his living room. Um, it's there for three months, and it unbelievably changed this family and this home for three months. And David catches word that this, the pre- what represented the presence of God that God was made present in this home changed the dynamic of this home for those three months. And David, I think, in that moment was restored and reminded. So he'd gotten past his, some of his anger. He'd gotten past some of his fear. And he was reminded once again of who God was. And he developed once again a hunger for the presence of God. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, man, what would it look like if, if we just made it central that in our homes we longed for God to be present? And the, the, people, the people we hang out with, with the way that we loved, with the way that we served, with who we invited into our home, um, with how we loved our neighbors, how would that tangibly change 
not only you as a family unit, us as a community, but the people that God's put in our lives to serve and, and love. Because here's what, here's what David realized, is that the presence of God is a game changer for your life. Like, we know that, right? Like, the times that we've pressed into God, we've seen his presence, we, we know that it changes life. It did for David. It did for David. Um, but here's the hard thing with David, is he wanted the presence of God on his terms. Right? So he's moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem in a way that, that he thought would be appropriate, even though God had strictly said no. God had said, no, this isn't, this isn't the way to do it. There's only one way to transport what represents my presence, and it's not by putting it on a cart. Um, he wanted the presence of God on his terms. So let me ask this question. This is, I'm going to just tell you from the beginning. It's a little bit of an unfair question. Um, but I'll, I'll explain. What's more important, God's presence or your desires? Okay, you, like you're thinking, like, I know the church answer, which probably isn't even really the answer. It's a little bit of a false dichotomy, I think, um, because God's gifted and wired us, and so there's a much part of who, like, who you are as an individual, I could point to any of you, that the, the way God's wired you is really, in many ways, the means to his presence, um, to the extent that that desire, I think, is, is infused with his spirit. Because desires aren't fully anti-God, right? Um, at the same time, though, we look at David, and he, he had desires, and what obedience looked like to him wasn't quite what God said was obedient. So it was like partial obedience. So essentially, it was disobedience. And I think the danger... so. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is this idea of, okay, what does it look like for us to be a people that, that yearn for the presence of God more than getting what we want? Because I think that the, the presence of God for us, sometimes God wants to give us his presence in a way that we don't want at all. Right? I mean, we could all raise our hands and say, I want God's presence in my life. I want God's presence in my family. I want God's presence in my kids. I want God's presence to enter my workplace and people to be changed the way that I've been changed. But the, the desire for how that's going to be accomplished sometimes isn't how God wants it to be accomplished, right? Um, in John 1.14, you may be familiar with this verse. It says that Jesus, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So the presence of God was a significant factor um, in, in Christian faith. Is that it's not just about, I mean, we, like, we gather here, and every, before we gather every, every Sunday, some, some of us go on the other side of this wall here, and we pray, and we pray, God, we want your presence here. We don't just want to go through religious motions and sing and stand and be, and be together with, and void of God's presence, but we actually want God's presence to be here. And I think there's a great danger sometimes when we think about, okay, are, are we willing to give up some of the things that we desire if it means more of God's presence? Or are we willing that the desires that we have, we'd lay them on the table and say, God, you shape and mold them and use them however you want? Whether this is how you wired me and not how you wired me, I want to be filled with your spirit. I want you to use me and take my gifts and use them for your glory. Are we willing to put those on the table? Because I believe the goal is always God's presence. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're walking through, the goal is that we would experience God's presence. Um, Tim Keller says, deep down, we cling to the simplistic idea that if we are good, life will go well. We cling to the simplistic idea, if 
we are good. Life will go well. Right? Like, what if David would have done the right thing with, with moving the cart? Then his life would have gone well because he did good? We know that's simply not true. Fundamentally, because of God's acceptance. Let's keep going. Look at verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Okay, let's stop for a second. This is really interesting. So I don't know if this is like, have you ever like sat down for dinner? Uh, we, we, we did this the other night. Um, we sat down for dinner and we're all eating and we're like, and one of the kids is like, we didn't pray. So like, all right, stop, put down your four. Or sometimes you ever do the like, we'll pray at the end and we'll thank God for what we just ate. That's a good one. But like, like six, six steps in. So they're like, okay, we're going to do this thing right. We're going to move the presence of God to Jerusalem. Six steps in, they stop and they have a worship service. Like, that's like from here, like, to Scott. <laughs> All right, guys, so let's take a break. What? Like, like, really? Let's think about this for a second. Could it be that David was still afraid? What, what, if, what if God strikes me dead? What if I blow it again? What, what if my, my reign as king, like King Saul, fails? So he's like, we got we to gotta offer sacrifice. We got to, like... Or could it be that David, and this is what I think it is, he's overwhelmed with the grace of God. That him, as a broken, sinful man, isn't killed, but is given a second chance. I think he's just overwhelmed that one, that he could be in God's presence, but two, that he could be one of the primary leaders that would take the Ark of the Covenant to the center place of Israel that would infuse Christianity throughout much of the world. I think he's overwhelmed with joy. And he wanted to do it right this time. So he's like, man, let's stop. Let's, I know, guys, I know we're six steps in. I know, I know we still got a long journey, but I really think now it's good. You got to wonder what the other guys were saying there. Look at verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. A great verse, huh? Anybody like to dance? I know the answer to that. <laughs> um, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And David, or so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I think, here's what I think David is realizing. Um, his acceptance made him dance. His acceptance made him, like there was walls that came down and it made him free. Let me explain it this way. So one of uh, my, one of our family goals, we didn't sit down and say like, what are our goals as a family? But one of the things that we, God's just shaped our heart, that we want to continually do as a family is just how we welcome people into our home and how we um, love and serve people that come into our home. Well, it's interesting, we... Over the years, we've seen like people, mainly people who don't know us very well, or we don't know very well, who come into our home, and anytime you don't know someone very well and you go into their house, you go into their living room, like it's like a, you know, it's like an intimate place, right? Like this is their living room. This is where you do life. Um, and so, you know, people would come into our home and like their walls are up, right? They're trying, they're, they're kind of checking things out. Like how's this home run? What's this like? This is a new place for me. And it's awesome to watch those walls break down where 
people don't want to be known, or people like, you know, they're, they're, they'll sit on the couch real nice, and even kids, when they're first there, they'll sit on the couch real nice, and can I use the bathroom? And, and then the more they're there, the more comfortable they get. The other day I was at my house, um, beginning of the day, and uh, all the kids are at school, but there's some other kids that are in my house, and there's a kid in my pantry getting something to eat. I won't say who the kid is, but... Um, they're, they belong to one of you in this room, but um, they're just, they're just in there getting something to eat. We were talking about it the other day, and she was cracking up. And we, just, like, like we just love it because people are like, there's a sense where they're home. Like one kid runs and opens the drawer, the junk drawer where all the markers are, and they're like pulling them out. And I'm just like, okay, okay, there's free. They're jumping on our couches. And so there's a sense where, okay, let's just be honest. Like when you're at home, you're safe, right? Like, you're, anybody sing at home? Like, like no one's going to get up and sing right now. But when you're at home, like, you're running around your underwear. You're, like, singing. Sorry for the visual. Um, but it's like, you're, you're free, right? Right? Because um, acceptance makes you dance. It makes you free. Like, you know you're in a place that's, that's safe. So you can let your guard down, and you can be you. And you can rest. And David here, he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. But here's what's crazy is he's doing it in front of everybody. I'll touch on that in a second. But he's doing it in front of everybody because he knows he's accepted even though he's done awful things. And we're going to look at even more of those awful things next week. But he knows he's accepted and he literally, it's all he can do. To hold it together, he can't. He's dancing with all of his might before the Lord. Let me ask a couple questions. Where are you bound up by your sin? Or where is fear restricting your life and joy? Because you're forsaking, you're forgetting the acceptance that comes not through how you behave, but how Christ behaved on your behalf. There's a passage in Zephaniah that I think depicts God's profound invitation, that God is the one initiating the dance. Okay, so often um, we think about this, I got to work really hard to please God, but ultimately, check out this verse in Zephaniah 3. God is the one initiating the dance. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What a, what a picture of freedom. Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O, daughter, o Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let me be really clear and say this. God's delight in you isn't dependent on you. God's delight in you is not dependent on you. I have a really hard time swallowing that sometimes because I want to work for God's delight in me. And the truth is, we know the gospel. You can't. You cannot do it. And I think we'll never be free from the grip of sin 
until we embrace this truth. That God doesn't look at us and say, I love the person you're going to be in 10 years. What does he do? He looks at you and says, I delight in you. And because of that, here's who I'm going to make you in the next 10 years. Such a beautiful thing. And so God here in this moment is inviting us to dance. Think about David for a second. What did he do? He saw the grace of God. Poured out upon him a hopeless sinner. He was angry. He was fearful. He was mad at God. Yet God was wooing him into his presence to call him to repentance, to call him to do things the way God intended and God wanted him to do. He was drawing him in and he's rejoicing because of God's acceptance, because he had experienced God's love and God's joy. But here's, uh, I want to tie it in this way. I talked about David dancing before the Lord, but doing it in front of everyone. I talked last week about the, the call for Christianity, the call as one church to be a people who hold out hope. Who, who because of who we believe we are, because of who we believe we aren't, because of who we believe God is, is that we live in this exuberant joy that would change how we go about our day. That people would hate us because we're so hopeful, right? That Christians would be the, the most intensely futuristic people because hope is believing the future realities of God into the present. And so David, in this moment, even in the midst of his struggle and even in the midst of his sin, he was dancing before the Lord in such a way that people looked on him and were changed. Some hated him. You can keep reading in, in 6. There's a girl that's looking at him and despises him because of what he's doing, because of the freedom, just judging him. And I just get this picture as I read this passage of what would it look like for us as the church to dance people into the presence of God. Can I put it that way? Or is that just weird? think you know what I mean, is that we would be the kind of people who celebrate in a way that draw people to Jesus, not repulse them. Some people will be repulsed, but it's the way that we make an impact. This is our call as Christians, understanding God rejoices over us, and that as we receive the invitation to dance with God, we would realize the profound impact that it has on our hearts, the profound impact that it has in our homes, the profound impact that it has in our city to be a people that live a life that demands a gospel explanation. David was changed because of his awesome pursuit of God? No. Because God in his mercy allowed him to usher his presence into Israel even in all of his brokenness. It's profound. Let's pray. And let's think and respond to the Lord. Lord, may we never get bored of hearing about your acceptance. 
may we never grow numb to hearing that you delight in us in spite of us, that your delight in us is not dependent upon us. God, would you take each person that's in this room and the heaviness that's in their heart and the struggles they're weighing through and the chaos to which they find their life in even now. And I pray that you would dance over them. I pray that you would delight in them, that they would sense that, that they would feel that. And that even now in this moment as we prepare to respond to you, that you would usher us into your presence and we'd be reminded of your holiness, that we would never forsake your holiness as a community. God, you would remind us of the joy that we can have as people who live celebratory lives. God, you are amazing. Thank you for your word. Would you enter our chaos and lead us to your presence, we pray in Christ's name.